The warnings came in that morning over the crackling sound of the ship's radio. They said, icebergs. For most of the day and parts of the night of April 14, 1912, the warnings were ignored by the world's largest ocean liner, an unsinkable ship on her maiden voyage, Titanic. By now you know what happened next. Just before midnight, the unsinkable ship collided with a North Atlantic iceberg, tearing a 300-foot gash in her hull that doomed 1,500 passengers to a watery grave. Her story has long been the most famous maritime disaster in modern history, but for decades, the location of Titanic's wreckage was thought to be lost. And even when her tattered hull was discovered in 1885, she could only be seen by a minuscule crew in a tiny, deep-sea submarine. This year, today's guest journeyed to Titanic's final resting place with a new, experimental sub that hopes to bring more people face-to-face -face with the planet's most legendary shipwreck. And she's here with us to tell the tale. Welcome back to the Get Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sills, a freelance journalist. Today, another journalist joins me. She's an award-winning writer. She's a fellow of the Explorers Club who tells stories of adventure, exploration, and conservation around the globe. She's been a ghostwriter for the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio, and she's seen her own byline appear in places like the Explorers Journal, Adventure Travel, and the Colorado Review. Her name is Kim Frank, and she joins us now. Kim, hi. Hi, how are you, Joe? I am fantastic, and I'm so excited to talk to you today about this expedition because you literally just got back. I did. I almost just have my my land legs back. And, <laughs> and you just filed your copy, too, so I'm sure it's like a really yes. exciting day for you. It feels fantastic, um, you know, as you well know, to, to really experience a story and then having to sit down and then write the story and then that moment of pushing send feels like a celebration yeah totally does it sort of feel like when you get back home from the expedition like only half of the job is actually done oh for sure and you you know the whole time you're on expedition you're excited you're i, I feel fully alive when i'm doing a story when i'm on an expedition because it it 
I'm noticing every detail. I'm absorbing everything. I'm really in the moment. And I, I rarely, I'll do some like taped notes, but I rarely will write notes and I won't write while I'm there. I just try and really experience it. But then when I get home, it's all the transcribing, all the trying to put it, you know, put the art into and the experience into into words succinctly and interestingly. And that is kind of brutal, to be honest. <laughs> Even though we love to write, it is, you don't love it every minute. No, and I feel like for me, that's when like I start getting imposter syndrome and I have to reassure myself that I am really qualified to write this. Like yeah. I'm the guy. <laughs> You know, right, exactly. I saw it for myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think that's one thing, too, that when you're writing from um, experience on an expedition, because I've done both where I'm writing in other people's words about their expedition, right, and their adventure or their firsthand experience. And because I have my roots in fiction writing, it's actually I, it's a thrill for me to get fully into them as a character. Mm -hmm. But after a while, I get antsy. Uh, and feel like I want, you know, to experience it myself. And I do feel bolder once I've had the experience myself. I definitely feel more imposter complex when I'm writing in someone else's voice. <laughs> oh, yeah. When you talk about that fiction background uh, and you're on a real world expedition, do the people in front of you sort of become like fictional, not fictionalized yeah, characters, but they become characters like you would read in a novel? Oh, definitely. Because I think the whole time... Um, I'm out somewhere and knowing that I'm going to be writing about it, I'm looking at, at people as far as what makes them unique as characters. Because one thing I, I really take from my fiction writing background in my nonfiction writing is character-driven narratives. So um, I'm keenly interested in people as characters, what motivates them, what their challenges are, how they surmount their challenges. And Boy, I mean, the cast of characters on this Titanic expedition could not have possibly been better. It was like someone someone actually casted it. I can't wait to get into that with you. Uh, before we get there, I want to talk a yeah. little to you about some writing stuff because I know you do workshops yeah. and things. Um, Great. So we're, we're both in this climate of instant gratification when it comes to media. Yeah. Th things last no amount of time, right? You specialize right. in narrative storytelling and, mm -hmm. you know, narrative storytelling is not something you do in a listicle generally or a photo gallery or 800 words. Right. That's right. It's, you know, there are some very, very skilled storytellers who are able to compress uh, narrative storytelling in that small space, but it's a particular genre mm -hmm. um, writing real narrative character driven as as you know takes takes more space takes space time and personally i struggle with trying to find the right outlets for these powerful stories i want to tell yeah. which is one reason right. this show exists but as someone who's like really focusing in on that what challenges do you face when it comes to placing a story like this oh boy it's a that's a really great question and i get asked often because um, you know, a lot of the kind of traditional and big name magazine and, and media outlets mm -hmm. aren't that interested in, um, well, they, they either A, have kind of a dedicated staff already. So as a freelancer, it's hard, it's, it's 
pretty difficult to to kind of break into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I really value my creative freedom as a writer. So the path that I've chosen is that I have some some magazines that I cherish their their storytelling. Like so, for example. Um, sidetracked magazine out of the UK is an adventure and exploration magazine that uh, really lets you tell a full, beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Oceanographic is who I'm doing this upcoming story. They're another one um, that's keenly interested. Uh, you know, ironically, they're out of the UK, which still kind of has a an appreciation for longer narrative. And it's not just really about length. It's um, it's kind of a, a lesser sensationalized style of telling a story. Um, one of my favorite storytelling platforms that I was an editor for, and then they're kind of on hold right now, unfortunately, is MapTIA. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with them. But, I've heard of them, yes. Um, they really offered an amazing opportunity for writers and photographers, primarily photographers actually, but to have a place to put their stories up for, with full creative, creative freedom Mm -hmm. uh, curated by the, by the editors. And there are some places like that, that still, that still exists. I think also people are starting to move towards Substack. Yeah. Um, to give themselves kind of more creative freedom and on the tell page. Tell people what Substack is just for the non-writers out there. So I I am right on the periphery. Substack is something that I'm exploring, um, but I have yet to, I, I'm working on a book right now, uh, which is, I think, another way to try and like tell a story without having to daily pitch magazines. But um, anyway, I've so I haven't actually... I haven't, I signed up for Substack. I haven't used it yet. So I don't know a lot about how to like really make it work, but it is a platform that a lot of freelance writers who are feeling kind of frustrated with um, the truncated uh, edited out versions of their stories or have bigger stories to tell um, have created kind of their own it's almost like a, a written newsletter that comes out regularly, but yeah, it's your subs- story. And people and can people subscribe. subscribe. Make, it's like yes. a, a Patreon for it is writers. It's exactly like that. Correct. Correct. Like, I'm seeing that more and more uh, people in our field that are just saying, you know, damn it all. I've, yeah. and I speak from experience. I'm writing for Forbes. Yeah. I'm running for Net Geo. I'm running right. for Discovery. I mean, you name it. If, if there's a top of the mountain, I'm supposed to be on the top of that mountain. <laughs> But everyone up here is broke as shit. So it's like. Totally. It's true. Well, that's true. I mean, this is not a a way to make money. Like, honestly, the way to make money isn't getting your because everybody's a writer right now. Right. So Mm -hmm. you can you can, you know, people can and there and people who don't aren't really writers, writers are are just giving stories away for free everywhere just to get the byline. And so. I think that um, in some ways, if you're freelance, as I am, as you are, you almost have to seek an alternative funding source, like giving yeah. workshops or, you know. You uh, have that freedom, though, because you kind of make your own rules, right? Yes, yes. Um, so but anyway, as we sort of transition from from our careers and our <laughs> writing, because we guys, we, we will talk about this forever. On that topic. <laughs> yeah, we, we will like bitch and moan forever. Um, yeah, yeah. 
I, we're going to get to Titanic uh, right after this sponsor break. But before the sponsor break, shout out to Parker Prince, uh, our, our first sponsor. Love those guys. Yeah. I want to ask you real quick about another trip you went to, which is to the Britannic, yeah. her sister ship. Yes. Just give us an overview of when you went to Britannic. It's more accessible because of the depth. But Definitely. give us an overview yeah. of when you went, what you're doing there. So I went to the Britannic in 2015. Um, my my um, let's see how do I, my husband um, was part of a, a group, a team. He was doing some like legal permitting work and photography. Uh, the team was going out to Britannic to dive it. They the last dive they had done was six years prior, and they lost their best friend. Oh my um, gosh. So it was, so the dive is um, pretty much at the limit of what rebreathers can comfortably do. These mm -hmm. are very skilled divers. Um, they were also on site filming, you know, with all these stories, especially with these shipwrecks that are pretty high profile shipwrecks, there's almost two storylines, right? There's the storyline of what was the Britannic. The Britannic was a sister ship of titanic exactly looks the same completely was um commissioned as a hospital ship actually uh, uh during world war ii and was wait world war one sorry I yeah world war one i'm like whoa wait we're back in the way early 1900s um and then was actually sunk by uh, i think they were it was sunk by a german torpedo everybody survived it was right off the shores of kia greece um, and but the ship itself is a kind of a perfectly preserved Titanic, essentially exactly the same. The watertight doors, um, the problem that the Titanic had with the watertight doors uh, was fixed for the Britannic. So but yet the doors were surprisingly seemingly left open. My so gosh. there remained a mystery of what happened. Was and, it sabotage uh, or were this White Star Line officials just totally incompetent? Yeah, well, that there you go. Actually, it ends up that the theory now is that the doors actually were open when the, it was discovered the doors were open. And um, in fact, what the belief is, is that because there were so few crew available during World War One, people were just picked off and thrown into the ship. And that without adequate training, the likelihood is that the people that were manning the doors panicked and ran away instead of staying there and putting them up, which could have potentially saved every <laughs> saved the ship. Um, so this team was committed to trying to find out the mystery. And six years prior to the date that we were out there, um, they actually had a film crew and uh, there was a lot of pressure on every on all the divers, you know, to be to be kind of 100 percent with the film crew filming at the same time that they're trying to do this very technical dive. Yeah. So in exhaustion, um, one of the divers um, fr from Carl Spencer from the UK, a very skilled technical diver, also dove Titanic, um, I believe, and not in a rebreather, but he um he actually grabbed a, a an oxygen bottle on his way up by mistake uh and and then died and so when he, di I he went, died from hypoxia yes so he grabbed the wrong tank uh he i think he placed the wrong tank there yeah. and breathed so 
he died in front of his friends. Um, no one on in, on the twenty fifteen expedition. It was a very quiet expedition. There wasn't really, a, you know, a substantial film crew. They were going out with friends that had a ship from Malta, um, and then. I was going to tell the story. And interestingly, I think, you know, there's this kind of narrative that explorers tend to like to tell, which is, you know, the mystery of the door, you know, or the mystery of the sinking. But honestly, the story that was revealed very strongly while we were out there was the friends and what it was like to be back there for the first time after they lost their friend and diving the wreck again. And would they succeed? And each diver had his own kind of battle, really, um, both psychologically and technically. So it was very compelling as a storyteller to um, explore explore that. And then also, of course, to be able to see uh, the Britannic, like, I didn't dive the dive it myself, but, I, you know, you, we were able to watch the radar as they were going down. And um, there was a... a but there was like a um, submersible there too, filming. So it was very fascinating. Right. And I think it's important to note that you're on scene and it is dangerous to give you guys a a little bit of perspective. The Britannic is about 390 feet down in the Mediterranean. If you go to a, a scuba course for a couple of weeks and then get certified as a diver, you begin with a maximum depth of 60 feet. Yeah. Okay. 60. And then as you earn more certifications, you can go deeper and deeper, but to even have the qualification to go as a human in a suit down Mm -hmm. to 390 feet, you, you have to have hundreds and hundreds of dives, a lot of coursework. There's switching bottles down there. There's really long periods of time that you have to wait and have to have the right mixture of Right. Oxygen and a different and other system. Elements. You're you're diving on rebreathers, which is kind of like flying a helicopter. Yeah. As far as tech technical capability. In in what way? Just because it's so technical? So a rebreather system and I boy, I mean <laughs> I'm not I'm I'm not the expert on being able to describe this in any way, shape, or form. Um however, a rebreather allows you to dive more deeply. Um because of the way because i don't actually i'm trying to like be an expert on something i don't even know (laughs) for what i do know is that rebreathers require essentially flying to the bottom of you know a much deeper depth monitoring your gases in a much different way and the rebreather circulates oxygen oxygen to my understanding in a different or the gases in a different way than regular um there aren't bubbles so i mean there aren't the people that prefer rebreathers are people who prefer to like stay under longer, dive deeper. Um, film filmmakers uh, often prefer to have a rebreather. However, it increases the risk dramatically because you're, um, you know, you're filming. So uh, one of the guys on that dive is a very accomplished filmmaker um, and had all his, cam- you know, underwater photographer and had all his camera gear. He weighed. When he went into the water, he weighed 200, like he had like 250 pounds of extra stuff, of stuff on him, essentially, which becomes like doesn't have that weight volume, obviously, when he's in the water. But just the moment of them standing at the ladder and preparing to go off, the photographs 
from that expedition are pretty it, fascinating. It's carrying another person on, on your back, a big person, bigger than me. Yeah, right. And once you're underwater, even though the buoyancy plays a factor in that, you're still toting stuff around. You're going to burn through air quicker. And Definitely. As we dive into Titanic, which we're about to do. <laughs> so think about that. Britannic is 390 feet, and this man unfortunately passed away. Titanic's at 12,500 feet. You cannot, as a human, go there without a submersible. Correct. And actually, you cannot go there without a very specialized submersible designed to take on the amount of pressure that occurs at that depth. Before we dive into today's adventure with Kim and Ernest, I want to take a quick break to talk to you about Parker Prints. Before I was traveling the world, I was sweating it out at Parker Prints, designing t-shirts, working one-on-one -on -one with customers, and yeah, I was going to the back to help fold shirts in 120 degree heat. I speak from first-hand experience when I tell you they're giving you the best customer experience in the t-shirt business. You'll get none of that anonymous corporate runaround here. When you order custom shirts from Parker Prints, you are personally taken care of by their family. Whether it's Skylar in the art department, Catherine in production, or Kathy at the top of the totem pole, Parker Prints is the place to call when your business, group, or event needs custom t-shirts. When you make that call, you're getting the best prices and the best customer service around. Trust me, I know. Not only have I been an intimate part of that process myself, but I'm still ordering shirts from them today for the Get Lost podcast and my D&D group, Thockhouse Live. By the way, if you're a screen printer in the Memphis area, give them a shout. Parker Prints is currently hiring. So for your next group event or project, go to parkerprintsonline.com and give the team a shout. You absolutely won't regret it. Back to the show. So, Kim, let's talk about this Titanic experience. I want to know what the purpose of the expedition was, and I want to know how it began for you. Okay. Um, it began for me because my husband is um, a Titanic diver. He has done four trips to Titanic, to the bottom, explored Titanic. Uh, he's led one expedition. And he's also a lawyer who has helped um, kind of clear the way permitting-wise um, and protection of rights for filming-wise on the Titanic and shipwrecks like the Titanic. Mm -hmm. So because of that, um, there's a company in Everett, Washington named OceanGate. Ocean Gate has a founder named Stockton Rush, and Stockton is a, a mad genius, self-described, <laughs> and he had the idea that because the only submersibles that have been able to explore the ocean at depth are, um, there's one that the U.S. has that's used publicly for research, Alvin, mm -hmm. I think its name is. Um, there are two mirrors that have always gone down. They're Russian, have always been the ones to go down to the Titanic. And then there are, you know, two private ones. But there's never been a submersible available for people who would like to explore the deep ocean. Never. Stockton, uh, correct. 
You so have to be a scientist openly. or a researcher or on one of these little tiny, tiny things. Or a billionaire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they've all been round, all been at like a circle, just a round ball that could only fit three people in them. Mm-hmm. So Stockton's idea was to create using, because he's an aer- aeronautical guy. Well, he's like a, he's an airplane guy. He's built his own airplanes. And um, he, he had the idea that you could use carbon fiber titanium material and build a submersible in the shape of a sphere, mm-hmm. which could fit up to five people and have a bigger view porthole because the porthole is very crushable, obviously, at depth. So experimenting with materials at depth. So um, so David Concanon, who's my husband, was working with them um, you know, just in terms of some initial conversations around Titanic and around their project. And I came along for the ride. And as a writer, I was absolutely fascinated by this technology and kind of the disruption of the potential disruption of the field of, ocean, you know, deep ocean exploration. So they're trying to do something access. that's literally never been done before because they have carbon fiber and they have this new design that is as yet unproven. Correct. And they say, Kim, it would probably be a good idea for a writer to come along because this is a historic expedition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, they, um, they, we were out. So yes. So five years ago, we went to Ocean Gate and got to dive in one of the subs. I actually got to help land one of the subs in, in Puget Sound. And it was amazing. And um, fast forward to uh, the sub for the deep dive has now ha- um, is ready for Ocean Gate has what they call um, a Titanic survey expedition. Mm-hmm. And it lasts for six weeks. And it, there's a series of um, t- like 10 days that people go out and mission one, the mission two, mission three. Um, we were invited out for mission one, which was thrilling for me because that is the mission where potentially we would see history in the making with this technology. So as we fast forward and, and you're sort of at the the port, uh, you're in Nova Scotia? We are in St. John's, Canada, um, still during coronavirus restrictions. So um, it was pretty uh, challenging and dramatic to get into the country uh, we had to quarantine, you know, for two days before, well, we got our tests and then we got on the ship. We could see the ship out the window, <laughs> but we couldn't get on it. <laughs> what is that feeling like? I mean, what are you seeing when you roll up to the dock and you see the Ocean oh my Gate God. ship? What does it look like? So the ship that Ocean Gate contracted with is called the Horizon Arctic. It is this stunning, like, six-story um, royal blue, bright royal blue ship with this massive deck on the back that holds the platform, the landing platform um, that holds the Titan submersible. And the Titan submersible and its landing platform looks kind of, you know, tiny in context of this massive ship. Now, I have actually never 
been out at sea. I mean, real sea where I can't see the land. (laughs) And um, I have never been on a research vessel or, you know, like this ship actually, um, they used to tow icebergs um, out of shipping lanes was part of their job. Sadly, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that we towed icebergs. Yes. Believe it or not, up north, there used to be lots of icebergs. And in fact, um, I found out this little tidbit. The reason that, um, so the government of both the British government and also the U.S. government and Canadian government, they actually fund iceberg towing out of the shipping lanes because of Titanic. Mm. So they used to be very busy, but they said in the last couple years, there's barely been any work, which, of course, makes sense considering how fast everything is melting. You know, it's crazy to see real world evidence of that. Like, it's not just something on the news. It's people whose jobs depend on towing these icebergs don't have any icebergs Mm -hmm. to tow. Exactly. Make make your conclusions for yourself. (laughs) Right. Right. You can not agree that there's global warming or climate change, but those people on that ship said, that's all we used to do. And now we barely do it at all. Now they're towing Titan submersible, uh, which which is named Titan. (laughs) So I assume it's actually quite large. Um, It, you know, relatively speaking, if you compare the Titan size to the size of a mere submersible, um, the Titan is significantly larger and in much different in shape with the goal of being able to carry five people down. And then inside is all like Bluetooth technology, um, state of the art technology designed to be able to, you know, do scientific, like look in real time at the computer screen and everybody has an iPad in there to see what's what they're seeing out the portholes. So it, it, there's there's never been a submersible that could fit that many people. So as you finally get through your quarantine you, and you get on board the ship and it's massive mm-hmm. and, and do you head immediately out or are you like what's going on? Well, what was going on for us actually because you know this first this first mission and one of the reasons I was so it, so thrilled to be a part of this particular one was that there's a lot of um a lot of t- testing my my husband was calling it the no cry babies expedition because you know the first the first one is all about like things are going to go wrong and you're going to fix them and that's how you're going to know like how to do the next mission right mm-hmm. and for this particular one um and this might be a bit boring but it <laughs> the ship the platform has always been towed so it has because towed behind a ship that's mm-hmm. or a smaller ship that sub has of, to sit on a platform to correct or like come in and land and then get out of the water and stuff raises yes up. and that is also a patented innovative design and the and the purpose again is like to increase accessibility you don't have to always have this like massive expensive research ship you can actually pull it with a pretty standard boat and then go explore all over the place um for this expedition though we're going 400 miles off the coastline and out into the open ocean. And so therefore it didn't make a lot of sense to tow it. Um, So they built a ramp and the ramp was ingenious. I mean, it was built with these like copper piping poles that had 
with plastic around them and they were all put together so they rolled and then they had to test the ramp and of course you know the first time some of the poles broke so then they had to rebuild so the we've got a late start because the team uh the shipping team actually spent the whole entire um night not our crew but workers um building a new ramp before we could leave replacing all of it before we could leave so that was just one of the you know many hurdles that were overcome <laughs> so, <laughs> so i sat there and watched that for the first 24 from, hours from your window and, you, and you're just on <laughs> yeah. pins and needles like will this and, ever get off but and you know to be honest i wasn't too unhappy because saint john's cove is very calm and very beautiful and i could see out there the open ocean and i'm i actually get i uh, this is <laughs> I get pretty seasick, so I I had a lot of anxiety about I'm going to be out there. What's it going to be like? And um, so the 24 hours just living on the ship actually felt like a great way to acclimate. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And and as yeah. as you guys finally shove off and you head out to that open ocean, what does it feel like? Oh my God, it's amazing. So so you go to sleep in your little bunk bed with your little porthole and you look out and at one point, you know, when you go to sleep, it's the, the beautiful, colorful little houses of St. John's all up and down the hillsides. And then you wake up in the morning and that's gone. <laughs> you are underway and all you see, well, when I ran up to the bridge, the bridge, I was so excited. I was like sunrises and whales. And so, um, I ran up to the bridge, which was this fully glassed, the bridge is where, um, you know, they drive the ship and they have all right. the computers and they have just 360 giant glass and we were able to access it and be up there. And that's where I spent so much of my time. It was magic. And we did see dolphins and humpback whales. And, uh, and that was when I truly fully hard fell in love with being out on the open ocean. And it, did it start to click for you then? Did you start to see these narrative characters forming in your mind's eye? Oh, definitely. Because um, already we were having, um, so the way that Stockton ha ran that whole expedition was like, we had regular meetings. There was a lot, you know, every, every person that was there, whether they were, um, a seasoned Titanic expert, which there were three on board for that first expedition, P.H. Nargelet, who is a former um, French Navy captain, and he did five, led five expeditions to the Titanic and has been down there 30 times. And talk about a character. Oh my gosh, he's amazing. <laughs> he is just fascinating. And it's like a Captain Nemo. I mean, 30 yeah. times. Totally. And he was just like, I'm here because I'm curious. I'm here because I want to see it for myself. And then um, there was so like one of the Titanic experts um, is Rory Golden. He's Irish and he's out for the whole time and telling all these stories about the people of the Titanic and the communities in Ireland that have been generationally affected by the losses on the Titanic. And, you know, so, and he's his own character, um, you know, and there were archeologists on board. And then there were the mission specialists who um, are, are paying for essentially, in my view, I, I think of them as they're paying 
for the advancements of, of technology and innovation as if they were patrons. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are their, their ticket, so to speak, um, ensures them a, a dive. So they're from all of all walks of life. Um, but one of them, an Explorers Club member, Renata Rojas, has dreamed about visiting the Titanic since she was a little girl, and she has shaped her entire career for this moment. And so those tickets, even though those, can anyone buy a ticket to that or? Yes. Huh. So it's a little bit like Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic, like anyone can just grab a seat if they have enough coin or clout or what? Yes, definitely. And that is, um, I think that is a great analogy, actually, because it's, you know, paying for a seat for space exploration, paying for a seat for a unique opportunity to deep ocean explore. Um, There is some vetting. I mean, I think like if you are going to pay for a seat, the way that Ocean Gate works, as far as I experienced, you don't just show up and like, you know, eat the cafeteria food, which is amazing, and then just wait for your dive. Mm -hmm. You're completely part of the team. So you're out there on deck helping with anything that needs help with. And people are are brought in to be actually a working part of the of the uh, expedition. Okay, a so, meaningful working part. So they're educated, they're not just hanging around, they're actually trained to some degree to be useful to partake in the expedition. Yes, and that's part of the experience. And even for me, I mean, I technically, because I'm a writer, you know, we could just sit there and watch everybody, but it was also pretty cool the day that they did, you know, the second dive. Um, and I was out on the deck in my suit and <laughs> I had a job and my job was to make sure that the communication pole didn't get caught on a wire. You know? yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't like a, a huge re- job, but if I, if I messed it up, it would have been a huge failure and you were there so, and it, and it, it makes you good. it makes you a larger part of the expedition than just as an onlooker and observer um and this yes. is the part of this ocean gate dive that is unique because prior to this there probably weren't a lot of seats for people like a mission specialist correct correct so for renata for example she she um when she was a little girl well, when she was going into college, actually, she had decided that she was going to, she wanted to discover the Titanic, where it was, long ago, when she was a little girl. And then she decided she was going to go into oceanography so that she could discover the Titanic. And then it got discovered. <laughs> and so she said, Damn. all right, yeah, shit, what am I going to do now? So then she decided, okay, I'm going to go on the expedition. So she she was in college studying oceanography and she drove to Woods Hole because um, the person who was one of the people who was credited with discovering Titanic was speaking and uh, she went and met with him afterwards and asked, you know, how do I get to Titanic? And he said, oh, there will never be another expedition to Titanic. And if that's what you're going for, I would do something else. And she was so dejected that she um, decided she would go into finance. <laughs> and Oh my God, he killed day, her soul. He killed her dream, except dreams 
that are powerful enough rise back up. One day she was watching TV and saw William F. Buckley come out. Well, then they start doing Titanic expeditions. And I believe, I, I think he was coming out of a Titanic expedition or something similarly powerful mm-hmm. of an experience. And she said, wait, if you're rich enough, you can buy a ticket to something like this. Mm-hmm. So then she changed course. All right. I'm going to try and make as much money as I can so that someday when someone goes back, I can afford it to go. Wow. And so she, she saved up all her money and then she met Ocean Gate and she has been working with them as a mission specialist and a supporter of their of their innovation for five for five years now. Okay, Kim. So that's absolutely astounding and it it puts a new perspective on these people that are like buying tickets to things for me um i don't know about the space people but for this it seems like such a worthy thing for her as you guys are at sea for a couple of days i assume to get out there and you start to approach the site above the wreck what is going through your head oh i was on the bridge um and we approached at 8.30 in the morning and it was the ocean was very gray on that day and there were white caps and there wasn't a lot of wind I mean there had to have been if there was white caps but it didn't it wasn't like stormy or anything like that Um, and then the motors you know then we stopped and the captain person that was captaining the boat at the moment turned to me and said we are directly positioned above the stern of the Titanic and I just got chills thinking here's this crazy moment of one how did I even end up standing here right in this minute me but this crazy moment of like the technology that was the Titanic, the cutting edge technology that created the Titanic, the Marconi that's under my feet right now, that is the cutting edge technology of its day that Mm -hmm. saved people's lives. And I'm standing here looking out on this cutting edge technology that is, has the potential to democratize eventually ocean exploration. And on this ship, that is a you know the, a state of the art environmentally um, certified ship, and I'm thinking, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> this is really special. I think it's important right now to take people back to 1912 to 1140 at night, and to talk about the scene that was taking place mm. underneath your feet then. There would have been an iceberg. There would have been a a huge cacophony of people screaming, lights flickering, uh, grinding of metal, water rushing in. On board the Titanic, there were about 2,000 people, and the best estimates say 1,500 of them died. 53 children. About 700 crew. I mean, it was a complete human disaster 
what does it feel like to think about the people that are still below you? Um, well, technically there are no human remains, like physical remains of humans, like bones or anything like that. There is nothing that's not, they, there's the, all of that has disappeared completely. So I think it's more about the energy of the place and what had, what took place there and kind of, um, I felt a lot, I was thinking a lot about, you know, do I feel a spiritual presence here? Do I feel, I fully expected to feel um, like kind of a sense of a haunting almost or a spiritual presence or that I thought so many people died in this space that mm -hmm. there must be still that. And, and I actually am like not to get too woo woo, but I'm actually pretty in tune with spaces that have that energy. We're here for and that. So I, yeah. So I was expecting that. And I think one of the most surprising things about the trip, even when I, I went alone sometimes just to see, just to try and feel that. And, and I couldn't, I so you would go out it. alone on the deck yeah. and yes and try and like really feel what could be felt there. And what I felt was, was ocean energy like that. I felt life. I felt like that there's whatever remains there is at least at that level. I mean, I wasn't at 12,500 feet, but you know, someone said to me and I think it was very profound. People were asking, am I going to do the dive? And I have a, um, mentor I've been working with on my book who um, has actually uh, been, he's filmed, uh, he was out at the Titanic a couple of years ago and filmed there at, with Atlantic Productions. And he said, you know, Kim, the story's on the surface. Mm. All this, you don't need to get in that sub. You, Kim, don't need to get in that sub because the stories are all on the surface. The, you know, the people that died, died on the surface. Like they didn't, die at 12,500 feet, you know, like mm -hmm. that the ship is on the surface, the carcass of the ship is, I mean, on the, on the floor. Mm -hmm. Um, but the humanity and the, and the pathos of the, of the storytelling is, is really all on the surface. And when you think about how much an ocean moves, mm -hmm. it just, it was surprisingly, um, now that said, two of the women that were on the on the sh ship that were mission specialists were Nada and um, another woman both of them were very interesting in the way that they both told their stories of their absolute co compulsion to be at the site and to go to Titanic that it was almost like they felt and it wasn't like they're saying I'm a born it you know I was yeah. They weren't saying like I was in the Titanic and now I, you know, it through reincarnation I'm here. But this, listening to their stories, you could not deny that they had something, a connection to something there that that I've never that I've never seen before. I mean, 
almost like they were spirit driven to complete this quest, like a life quest. Definitely. It's a life quest for each of them in different journeys, a life quest that when we arrived, I mean, and for Renata, the quest was to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And for, for Chelsea, the quest, even as she needed, she, they, they both felt that they just had to see the wreck, like that, Mm -hmm. that, that there was something missing in their lives that they just had to, that was related to Titanic, that they had to touch it in some way. And that I found very spiritually interesting. So the first time they launched the Titan submersible off the stern of this gigantic six story vessel, mm-hmm. Renata is on board and Chelsea's on board. No, so the first few dives were kind of test dives. So we're tra- because of the new ramp system, um, there was a lot of jostling that was occurring, and uh, we just had to like test some things out. We had a weather delay on one day. We had like where they went down. They started to go down, and the the bat- the battery system was kind of not working the best. And so rather than take a chance, they were like, "Boop, okay." <laughs> We'll try again tomorrow. You know, we'll we'll like adjust and figure out what to do. Stockton has an amazing system of like he ca- he calls it. It's kind of like a checklist that you would do with flight. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of like, he he says, you know, if there's three strikes, we're out. So if some and if something's an anomaly, like if someone sees something that just seems slightly off, the smallest thing, like something wasn't plugged in on deck, even if it has nothing to do with the sub. That's an anomaly. If there's like five anomalies, it's a strike. It can be the littlest thing, like mm-hmm. like someone was supposed to show up and they overslept. That's an anomaly. So I found it fascinating the way that there was kind of this system of kind of built-in protection or safety. And then um, it was kind of decided, okay, let's do let's just have the pilot Stockton like at this point if you want to be like Stockton actually was saying you know not everyone's cut out to be a test pilot and what we're doing here this first mission is kind of test piloting and if you're you know on board for that just know that that's what that looks like so PH actually like you could die is what he means you could die yeah and and honestly like always you could die no matter what in any sub i mean it's highly risky like as far as yeah it, i mean it it's the same i think with with space travel or with um you know if you're gonna fly a specialized jet well shoot probably even some airplane travel like there are a certain set of risks already in place now one of the things that stockton has done with the sub that is also like very huge he has uh, a monitoring system that actually lets you know with sound if there's any compromise to the hull and that's revolutionary because they're able to tell long before something structurally would happen with pressure to the hull and that's the main concern that would be a problem when you're going that deep correct so they can get notification about that ahead of time and and pull up so yeah so ph went on all all the dives um stockton went on all the dives and then then we we did so there were three 
three attempts while we were on the ship and then it was time we had to actually go back um and then they went back out with the with the next mission and then that first day they they got the dot they got down they did it so just to add more perspective on this uh, yeah when you guys think about submarines i mean i think navy submarine nuclear sub right yeah Uh, those big los angeles class subs I think their maximum depth is actually classified, but it's generally accepted they go about 2,200 to 3,000 feet. So you're going 10,000 feet below what a United States nuclear submarine is capable of. That's great perspective. Yes. I want to know what these women who spent their whole lives on these spirit quests to go see the Titanic, what did they tell you when they came up? So Chelsea didn't go, didn't go on this dot on the test dot. She's going to come back for another for another um, another mission. Mm-hmm. Renata went on a on like a the first dive and then made the decision that she was going to wait for her Titanic dive to the next for the next time. Wow! So it she still remains. It. It's correct. So they both, but what fascinates me is the patience like they're like Renata especially I mean I've talked to her pretty consistently since since that she's been back and she's like it's going to happen and I'm going to be there and I'm going to do it with OceanGate and and uh, you know this is part of the process with every innovation throughout history you are a pioneer and you're, you know, you've got to get things right. And sometimes they're going, you're going to have hurdles you didn't expect and you just pick back up and you keep going. And she's like, that's just part of exploration. So I'm in it. I'm in for the long haul. Wow. That's amazing to me that to resist the temptation and just say, screw it. I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, I think like, I think that there is for her and I think for the other mission specialists I saw, there wasn't really a sense of like screwed. I'm going under any circumstances. I think it was like always a balance between kind of like the wisdom of, of the people that were actually piloting the sub and like really being respectful of, is this the right time? The first, you know, and again, I, they're now on their, third mission i think so now they're having now they've worked out a lot of you know the the bugs that you that that first expedition so for renata for example she knew that coming out in the first expedition would be a a high chance of her actually not getting to the titanic that trip Mm -hmm. but she got to the spot she knows what she's going to exactly and she was part Honestly, there was a thrill uh, and a prideful moment to be to bear witness to history being made technologically. Honestly, like that to me was the thrill. Sure, sure, and it's a little bit like the Mercury and Gemini astronauts. You know, not everyone was going to go be the first to land on the moon, but right, right, they were all a part of it, and it was dangerous for them. Right, exactly. So in the end on this first trip, did the sub actually make it down all the way? So the sub sub got to um, 800 feet on the first, during the first mission. 
and then our time was running. So, you know, we had to fix some things and then we had a situation where our time, like the time started running out. We got a late start and we had a weather delay one day and that is often par for the course. So we went back and then we had the, the next mission began. So we had to go back. It takes two days to get there, if you can believe that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's four days of your trip. You're only really out there four or five days. Um, and then, so then the next mission went out and they made the dive, uh, the successful dive, the, the, uh, I think first or second day on that second mission. Wow. And I actually had been, I had the opportunity to stay for another week and I, oh, I couldn't decide what to do. And I ended up coming home and then I, so I missed that actual dive, but. Yeah. But the important thing is you had the experience of that first initial journey and definitely their sub work their crazy idea that these people yes. were gambling on it and there's people in the scientific diving community saying this will never work this will never happen it it happened all over yeah it did it they did it exactly they proved the concept and and you know i didn't know this by the way that the wright brothers only flew like 100 feet their first flight yeah super and short i find that fascinating because they proved their concept and i i mean for in my opinion okay they proved the ocean gate proved the concept now you refine it you so know, what, now what does this do make it what does this do for the the future of deep sea exploration well the vision and i believe firmly that if they if they can continue getting the investment that they need to keep to keep going uh, the potential is that it will make deep sea exploration, which is one of the most, you know, salient things in our lives is the is the ocean, <laughs> whether we can see it or not, mm -hmm. um, make it accessible. So and when I say accessible, I don't necessarily mean that like for five dollars, you can deep ocean explore. I mean, accessible, like more people can go. And the more the concept works, almost the same as like when planes first began you know flying was it was exorbitant uh and over time as the technology became kind of more well known and and broadened uh then you know i mean it still costs a lot to fly but <laughs> a lot of us do it for people who want to be mission specialists does that break down some of the barriers of this boys club of exploration oh yeah i'm really glad you said that actually because one of the things that one of the I've had a lot of great conversations with Stockton on this trip, and I really admire him. I admire his spirit. I admire his tenacity. I love his sense of humor. One of the things I really liked, we were talking about um, the guys that were, you know, staying up all night doing the ramp. And he's like, you know, I don't really like stories like that because everybody in the in the exploration space always is talking about like oh yeah we stayed all night like there's some machismo thing mm -hmm. he said that's not safe you know and also i don't want a macho i'm trying to make this open for women and have more women be involved in ocean exploration and be involved in this kind of like adventure and exploration. And I want to create a culture 
that that really speaks to that. And he did. So it, it was that was a really cool part of the trip. I would applaud him for that as a male explorer. Um, I think it's important for us to elevate other people because it's not like uh, I was talking to my friend King of Phillips about this recently. Yeah, it, it's not like women haven't been exploring. No, no, right. no, no, no. It, it's that women haven't been getting the spotlight that men get. Definitely, and also this is actually a <laughs> this is a probably a topic for another day, but but also really dovetails on this is I. F- feel as a writer and as an explorer, I feel strongly that women narratives, women exploration narratives that speak to the, the rawness of exploration and the vulnerability of exploration and all the things that it actually takes like fear and that being honest about that, I feel like there's an opportunity to create a new narrative that women can relate to in men also can relate to that speaks to kind of a more feminine version of exploration beyond the male there i was narrative that we always see there i was i discovered this place that was i was taken to it by these people who live here but i found it (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) so uh on that note kim final question on your experience there as one of the few people that's probably been to Britannic and Titanic or yeah. at least above them um, what's what's the difference in the in the vibe and the energy between those two locations oh wow yeah so Britannic felt more spiritually kind of I think um, Britannic felt because it was closer, the water's clear, you can't see it, but um, you can see Kia, there's, you can kind of make a human connection. And personally, my experience there with the people who had lost their friend, and I felt that person's energy with us there. And so it it made it made that expedition um, kind of emotional, honestly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, Whereas the Titanic felt just bigger in every way, like, uh, <laughs> like I'm on this giant ship and I'm out in this massive ocean and thousands, you know, people died here in mass and many famous people died here and many unknown people died here and, and not just that, but there's this new technology. I mean, there, it was almost like drinking from a fire hose in terms of so much was happening at once and, with Britannic, it it just felt uh, kind of this extraordinary beauty and profound sadness all kind of mixed together. Fantastic story, Kim. Thanks so much for sharing. You guys can follow her on Instagram. Uh, Kim Frank Writer is her handle or KimFrankWriter.com if you want to learn more about her, including some really nice clips from stories you've written that gives you a uh, a great perspective on Kim's style of writing. It's just phenomenal and unique, and I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much, Joe, and that fanhood is extended to you as well. Thank you. I really appreciate your time today. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast for a chance to win an autographed copy of Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. And don't forget to leave us a review.